The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Back in late grade school, I was reading Stephen King's novel called It. And the epigraphs to each new section of that novel were quotations from poetry. And they were to a poet, since this was grade school, this was a poet I had never heard from. And it happened to be from Patterson, the long poem by William Carlos Williams. And I owe a great deal to Stephen King because uh, not only did he introduce me to Williams in his book It, he introduced me to uh, T.S. Eliot in his book The Wastelands, and I believe it's in Salem's Lot that he includes a poem by Wallace Stevens. So I've always appreciated it that Stephen King knew his poets. But if uh, if any of you, any of you out there know a poem by William Carlos Williams, it is probably this one. This is probably his most famous poem, and it just says this. So much depends upon a red wheelbarrow glazed with rainwater beside the white chickens. And that's where the reading again. So much depends upon a red wheelbarrow glazed with rainwater beside the white chickens. Now, how do you end up writing a poem like that? Uh, Williams was born in 1883. He died in 1963. He lived basically his entire life in Rutherford, New Jersey as a doctor, as a pediatrician. Um, In his early life, he, uh, in his younger life, in college, he met both Ezra Pound and the poet H.D. Hilda Doolittle. But uh, unlike many of the poets of his generation, he did not go to Europe. The singular uh, fact about the one trip to Europe that he and his wife did take in 1924 is that they came back. Um, He never went to live in Europe, and there's something special about that. And I think that quality ends up not only in the poem that I just read, but in all of his strongest poetry. And it is worth listening to what William Carlos Williams himself had to say about, not just about his poem, The Red Wheelbarrow, but about his poetry in general. And let's take a listen here. What makes that a poem? Because it's the kind of thing that almost anybody might say. Yes, because no one believes that poetry can exist in his own life. I don't say that I have succeeded, but that you can, by arranging the words, make a poem out of anything provided you have 
conceived it. You have seen it in your life because the purpose of the artist, whatever it is, is to take the life which he sees and raise it, raise it up to an elevated position where it has dignity. So that now what I hope to do over the next hour or so is to show just how well William succeeded in what he's talking about, of realizing that just about anything can be the subject for a poem and making that poem uh, how good he was at it. But I think what we'll also discover is that uh, when you're living in a liminal time where the walls suddenly drop and that suddenly anything can be a poem, uh, there can also be a limitation to that realization as well. Um, it's hard to figure out just what anything can be a poem. You end up writing too many poems. I think I've said that uh, about many of the poets that I've shared here. Uh, perhaps it's just an inevitable thing that poets end up writing too many poems. But before I get there, I thought it was interesting, first of all, that William Carlos Williams and Wallace Stevens both attended the 1913 Armory Show of Picasso and uh, all the other modernist art that took place in New York City. And you can see what great divergences William Carlos Williams and Wallace Stevens took in their own poetry. It was important to him that his poetry was not written by hand, but was written using a typewriter. They talk about him taking even a small poem, like the one I just read, and typing it over and over and over again, just to see uh, where the line should break, which words should be on this line, and which words should be on the next line, and so forth. And uh, one of the things that I thought was really remarkable was that he, since he was a pediatrician, since he was present at so many births, um, in a way, uh, the, old, uh, the old modernist tagline, make it new, find the new thing, it's worth just emphasizing, I suppose, that unlike his other modernist forebears, unlike his other poet friends, uh, he actually was dealing quite literally with the new all the time, simply in uh, being present at the birth of so many children in Rutherford, New Jersey. And so uh, let's take about an hour here uh, to check out William Carlos Williams' poetry. And what we'll do is begin with two poems from a collection that he published in 1917. There's, uh, it's pointed out that his early models in poetry were John Keats, the sort of uh, glittering, perfect rhymes of John Keats. And on the other hand, the sort of explosive openness and, uh, and sense of freedom you get from Walt Whitman and it's also said that around the time that he latched on to both Keats and Whitman, he also met a young Ezra Pound. And Williams himself said that 
he could divide his life before and after pound. And so those three figures kind of got him on the track of finding his own voice, where it wasn't the formality of Keats, but it also wasn't the full-blown uh, Whitmanness, the uh, barbaric yawp stuff of Whitman either. It's something else. And we can see it right from the beginning in this poem from 1917 called uh, Pastoral. When I was younger, it was plain to me, I must make something of myself. Older now, I walk back streets, admiring the houses of the very poor. Roof out of line with sides, the yards cluttered with old chicken wire, ashes, furniture gone wrong. The fences and outhouses built of barrel staves and parts of boxes, all, if I am fortunate, smeared a bluish green that, properly weathered, pleases me best of all colors. No one will believe this of vast import to the nation. And the key to that poem, it seems to me, is the line, if I am fortunate, uh, the fences and outhouses built of barrel staves and parts of boxes all. And by this point, you might say, uh, you know, uh, you want to get away from all of that stuff. But he says, if I am fortunate, all of these things will be smeared a bluish green that pleases me best of all colors. He likes seeing all this stuff. And he says, no one will believe this a vast import to the nation. He is already on the virtue of the ordinary. And of course, if you look at his poems and also look at a, a book of Emily Dickinson's poems, it seems that he has learned a bit of the short line from her as well. And there does seem to be that joy in, uh, or just simple joy in many things that, um, that Emily Dickinson has as well. And this is another poem from 1917. This is Dance Russe. And it says, If I, when my wife is sleeping, and the baby Kathleen are sleeping, and the sun is a flame-white disk in silken mists above shining trees, if I, in my north room, dance naked, grotesquely before my mirror, waving my shirt round my head and singing softly to myself, I am lonely, lonely, I was born to be lonely, I am best so. If I admire my arms, my face, my shoulders, flanks, buttocks, against the yellow drawn shades, who shall say I am not the happy genius of my household? And that's worth reading again. If, when my wife is sleeping, and the baby Kathleen are sleeping, and the sun is a flame-white disk and silken mists above shining trees, if I in my north room dance naked, grotesquely before my mirror, waving my shirt round my head and singing softly to myself, I am lonely, lonely, I was born to be lonely, I am best so. If I admire my arms, my face, my shoulders, flanks, buttocks, 
against the yellow drawn shades. Who shall say I am not the happy genius of my household? So hold that image in mind. The doctor who is a poet, who never leaves the country, but stays in the place where he grew up and now has a family. Keep that image in mind. And we go to a poem called Waiting from 1921 and see what he does with similar subjects. Uh, this is Waiting. It says, when I am alone, I am happy. The air is cool. The sky is flecked and splashed and wound with color. The crimson phalloi of the sassafras leaves hang crowded before me in shoals on the heavy branches. When I reach my doorstep, I am greeted by the happy shrieks of my children, and my heart sinks. I am crushed. Are not my children as dear to me as falling leaves, or must one become stupid to grow older? It seems much as if sorrow had tripped up my heels. Let us see, let us see. What did I plan to say to her when it should happen to me as it has happened now? And there's a great mystery in that poem, both in taking those two poems together, especially the idea of solitude. Uh, I am alone, I am alone, I was made to be so. And the next poem says, when I am alone, I am happy. Um, there are a lot of poems about the difficulties of being a parent and of not feeling the way you think a parent should feel. But Williams goes a step farther by making it uh, a bit of a mystery. I'll just read the second stanza of this poem again. Uh, it seems nice that po Williams' poems, at least the ones I'm reading here, are short enough that we can take the time to read them uh, two or three times if we need to. He says, Are not my children as dear to me as falling leaves, or must one become stupid to grow older? You wonder what he means by that. One must, must one become stupid to grow older? It seems much as if sorrow had tripped up my heels. Let us see, let us see. What did I plan to say to her? There hasn't been a her mentioned in the entire poem, or is he talking about the capital S sorrow? It seems much as if capital S sorrow had tripped me, tripped up my heels. Uh, what did I plan to say to her when it should happen to me as it has happened now? And what has happened to him now? Um, has he uh, become stupid because he's older? Or what exactly is it? Um, how old would he have been? Um, 1883. So he's still not yet. He's almost 40 years old, and he's already calling himself old. Um, so what do we get from that? Well, in this case, it is worth looking at uh, the little bio that they have of William Carlos Williams up at the Poetry Foundation. And I will put a link to the full essay in the post description. But it says some wonderful things about uh, him and about his life. 
In part, it says, uh, in comparison to artists of his own time, who sought a new environment for creativity as expatriates in Europe, William Carlos Williams lived a remarkably conventional life. A doctor for more than 40 years, serving the citizens of Rutherford, New Jersey, he relied on his patients, his patients, the America around him, and his own ebullient imagination to create a distinctively American poetry. Often domestic in focus and remarkable for its empathy, sympathy, its muscular and emotional identification with its subjects, his poetry is also characteristically honest. The poet Randall Jarrell wrote, There is no optimistic blindness in Williams, though there is a fresh gaiety, a stubborn or invincible joyousness. And underneath this quote, I wrote the word wonder. There's a great sense of wonder in Williams, as if he's just opened up his eyes with each new poem. I'm thinking, by the way, mostly of the short poems. Those are the ones that I share here. I know that he has long sequences um, and more experimental books that mix poetry and prose. I know the famous poem that I started with, The Red Wheelbarrow, is only, uh, what, six lines in a much longer sequence of poetry and prose. And I know that he may have considered his long poem, Patterson, to be his greatest work. I'm not sure if I've seen him saying that or not. But it seems that where he was most American is where he is most plain and where he is most able to show that what is every day is poetry. It seems to be in his shorter poems. And let's see here. Right, here we are. And it says that he... Uh, began to find himself with that book from 1917. And uh, while he was considered a part, uh, an early part of the imagist movement in poetry, uh, you really don't think of him as being a part of anything now. But it was uh, a, a movement in Europe and America, mostly with Ezra Pound and H.D. and Williams as well. But he took it as his own. It says... Williams began to apply the imagist principle of direct treatment of a thing fairly, reg fairly rigorously. As Williams later said, uh, no ideas but the thing itself. That was sort of his tagline. Um, also, Williams was beginning to stress that poetry must find its primary impetus in local conditions, in local conditions. And Williams says later, I was determined to use the material I knew. And as a doctor, Williams knew intimately the people of Rutherford, New Jersey. So that beginning with his internship in the decrepit Hell's Kitchen area of New York City, and throughout his entire 40 years of private practice in Rutherford, William Carlos Williams heard the, quote, inarticulate poems of his patients. As a doctor, his medical badge, as he called it, allowed him to follow the poor, defeated body into those gulfs and grottoes, to be present at deaths and births, at the tormented battles between daughter and diabolic mother. From these moments, he says, poetry developed, quote, 
it has fluttered before me for a moment, a phrase which I quickly write down on anything at hand, any piece of paper I can grab, end quote. Some of his poems were born on prescription blanks. You can imagine uh, how many of his short poems were written the way they were because they fit on blank prescription sheets. Uh, others were typed in a few spare minutes between patient visits. William's work, however, did more than fuel his poetry. It allowed him to write what he chose, free from any kind of financial or political pressure. From the beginning, he understood the trade-offs. He would have less time to write, he would need more physical stamina than people with only one occupation, and he was willing to live the kind of rushed existence that would be necessary, crowding two full lifetimes into one, learning from the first and then understanding through the second. And it says, there is little doubt that he succeeded in both, since the biographer of James Joyce, Richard Elman, called William Carlos Williams the most important literary doctor since Anton Chekhov. And I share this quote because I never really thought of it before, but the preoccupation of this podcast, how Homer takes out the garbage, how creative people uh, step away from being creative when they're just not feeling it, or they have uh, other responsibilities, other things to do, but they're not making a living from what they create. Uh, William's life may well be full of many lessons of this kind. I sort of feel, in my own way, uh, that I have a kind of rushed existence, crowding two lifetimes into one. So it's nice to see a mention of that there. Also, by the time I became aware of poetry, uh, the quotation that I knew from William Carlos Williams before I'd read any of his poetry uh, in a book outside of Stephen King's It, uh, the quotation that I knew, because the first poet I latched onto was T.S. Eliot, the first quotation I knew from Williams was his comment about The Wasteland, which came out in 19... 22. T.S. Eliot was born in 1888, and Williams, of course, in 1883. So they were very nearly contemporaries, except that Eliot did the expatriate thing and was living in London at the time. Uh, Williams is back in Rutherford, and uh, this is what he says about the wasteland. I felt at once that it had set me back 20 years, and I'm sure that it did. Critically, Eliot returned us to the classroom, just at the moment when I felt we were on the point to escape to matters much closer to the essence of a new art form itself, rooted in the locality which should give it fruit. And I go back to the, the first thing I read about his life here. Um, how many times have you ever heard uh, T.S. Eliot's poetry called remarkable for its empathy and sympathy and its emotional identification with its subjects. How many times have you heard Wallace Stevens' poetry referred to in that way? Or Hart Crane, or even, uh, even Robert Frost, if you want to talk about glittering perfect rhymes, and they are wonderful poems. But uh, even, 
even Robert Frost's perfect little poems, the rhymes sort of keep you at a distance from uh, the subject matter. Even the blank verse does from him. You never really quite feel it. Uh, it's always uh, a bit of country wisdom between you and what is being described. But Williams is right there in immense sympathy with, uh, with his subjects. And I think that that is uh, important to realize. There's a, a wonderful sense of, of Williams also being a kind of voyeur in a creepy way that just wouldn't be allowed, where he is sort of driving around and uh, seeing women in their living rooms while their husbands are away and just admiring them, or uh, realizing in one poem that the, uh, the wife of the, the chief of police or the uh, chief uh, uh, firefighter still has perfect thighs after five children and all of these things. It sounds creepy uh, in 2022, but to read the poems, there's a weird sort of great boyish joy in being able to talk about these things, even if it doesn't make for a great poem. And these are things that uh, other, what, other top five, top 10 American poets of the century, whatever your list might be, uh, joy and happiness and wonder and empathy and sympathy uh, would not quite, uh, nobody else quite matches that outside of Williams. Even his great friend, his young protege, Allen Ginsberg, he has his facade, his, uh, um, his persona of being the, uh, the prophet that keeps you at a distance as well. William seems to have found a way with his short line and his breakthrough into plain subjects and plain speech almost to have found a way to do that in a really beautiful way. This next poem will show you that, that, uh, that same thing. It's called The Great Figure. And this is such a such a great little poem and so indicative of what he does, but also so understandable to someone who doesn't care much for poetry, that in a, in a documentary about Williams, this is one of the poems that was chosen for a sequence uh, of his poems that were animated, that were sort of turned into little uh, mini cartoons. And this is what it says. The Great Figure. Among the rain and lights, I saw the figure five in gold on a red fire truck, moving tents unheeded to gong clangs, siren howls, and wheels rumbling through the dark city. That's worth reading again. Let's try and read that a little slower. Among the rain and lights, I saw the figure five in gold on a red fire truck, moving, tense, unheeded, to gong clangs, siren howls, and wheels rumbling through the dark city. And how many lines is that? 
that is one line short of a sonnet. But uh, the words fire truck moving tense unheeded, all of those words have their own line. And it's wonderful what he does with his with his uh, line breaks. Now he does that with a fire truck and it's great. Uh, he ends up doing uh, the sort of what I mean about the the limitations sometimes in uh, suddenly realizing, you know, with uh, with uh, more boyish glee and joy that suddenly everything can be a poem. Um, his limitations are that, well, he does uh, an early poem about the telephone and how it's a distraction or uh, just other trinkets and things that are lying around. And that's where he seems to write too much. But again, I suppose you could say that uh, we all would have our five favorite um, anecdotal Williams poems about things like this. And he wrote five for you, he wrote five for me, he wrote five for somebody else. We all have our different favorites. But I always like the one. And I think of my daughter now who loves fire trucks. She would love this poem. And then, it's only then that we come in 1923, his book Spring and All, and in part 22 of Spring and All, as I said, and only as a prelude to, uh, to let's see, to three poems of prose, only then do we come to the point where he writes perhaps his most famous poem, which I will read again here. So much depends upon a red wheelbarrow glazed with rainwater beside the white chickens. And uh, what do you make of that? Uh, it's, it's a remarkable statement to just have there and uh, to keep in your mind. There's a great bit of, of Zen going on with Williams. I know it's been said that, that Wallace Stevens considered the, the titles of his poems as being something like Zen koans, little bits of wisdom or little verbal puzzles. But I, I get the sense that, that Williams knew cones or koans a little better as also being uh, little tricks and uh, little uh, jokes even that sort of fix your eye and change your perception. Let's see what the next poem is here. And this is a poem from about 1930 or 1931. This is called Flowers by the Sea. This is the first version. I suppose he, he fiddled with it a bit and found a version he liked better. But since the first version is published in his collected poems, uh, I prefer this one. It says, Over the flowery, sharp pasture's edge, unseen, the salt ocean lifts its form, flowers and sea. They bring each to each a change, chicory and daisies, tied yet released, seem no longer flowers alone, but color and the movement or the shapes of quietness. Whereas the thought of the sea is circled and sways peacefully upon its plant-like stem. 
over the flowery, sharp pasture's edge, unseen. The salt ocean lifts its form, flowers and sea bring each to each a change. Chicory and daisies, tied yet released, seem no longer flowers alone, but color and the movement, or the shapes of quietness, whereas the thought of the sea is circled and sways peacefully upon its plant-like stem. Beautiful little bit there. Now we come to something completely different, as they say. This is a poem called poem called War the Destroyer from 1942 and appropriately enough this is dedicated to uh, uh, Martha Graham and we remember in the early poem uh, Dance Russe where he is dancing up in his attic uh, Williams was very aware not just of modernism in poetry but of modernism in music and uh, in painting of course he went to the armory show but also uh, in dance itself with Martha Graham. And uh, so he seems to come back to the idea of dance now and again. And here he uses it with the subject of war. What is war, the destroyer, but an appurtenance to the dance? The deadly serious who would have us suppress all exuberance because of it are mad when terror blooms, leap and twist, whirl and prance. That's the show of this, the circumstance. We cannot change it, not by writing, music, neither prayer. Then fasten it on the dress, in the hair, to incite and impel. And if dance be the answer, dance, body and mind, substance, balance, elegance. With that, blood-red, displayed flagrantly in its place beside the face. And it's not the kind of poem you'd expect from William Carlos Williams. That's another reason to include it. And we can take another break here to look at little bits from his life. Let me find this other quotation from the Poetry Foundation. So this is talking about how unknown Williams was through most of his life. Um, how he, again, great lessons for me here on this podcast, how he saw someone like T.S. Eliot who made the trip over to England and became famous from the wasteland and to Williams' mind was turning poetry yet again into just something for classroom study and classroom picking apart, trying to identify all the allusions and quotations from classical literature and everything else, while Williams is back at home being a doctor and writing about the things he sees every day around him. And actually, you could probably write a good essay or a good small book about how Wallace Stevens, who was uh, an insurance executive in New Haven, and who walked to work every day, uh, writing poems in his head, dictating them to his secretary, as I've said before, you would love to be that secretary or to just talk to her to see what the hell that was like. 
um, how it was that these two poets who did not emigrate and did not become expatriates and who lived relatively close to each other, if we're considering the entire expanse of America, uh, how it is that they took the things they saw every day and the things they thought every day, how they turned them into such vastly different kinds of poetry. But um, so this says that uh, even after he had been writing for nearly 30 years, he was still virtually an unknown literary figure. Uh, a typical early response, a typical public response to his early works, the world received his sixth and seven, seventh books as it had the five before them in silence. And I think it's true that he was published by small presses his entire life up until, I'm going to get this right, um, up until 1954 with his book called uh, The Desert Music. Let's see. Desert Music was published by Random House. And let me see something else here. Yeah, the book before that was published by a small press. Uh, his 1955 book, Journey to Love, was published by Random House. And then his Pictures from Bruegel was published by New Directions, finally. And I think that, uh, which includes this, the desert music and Journey to Love. And I think it was New Directions that published Patterson. Uh, the whole time while he was alive and publishing bits of that. So he had that to deal with. And just from the autobiographical, the biographical bits I have found, he seems to have had his share of jealousy and anger at that. And uh, there's even a sense that he stopped publishing poetry after Eliot's Wasteland was uh, published in 1922. Excuse me. He didn't do it again for another 10 years, almost as if he needed to figure out what he should do next. And so I thought it was interesting that, and when I thought of doing an episode on Williams, this is actually the first thing I thought of. I thought of a, a, of a story about Williams from, I believe from 1946 or 1947, where he is invited to a week-long uh, conference held in Salt Lake City to where, where a bunch of uh, uh, new criticism folks and other academics will be there talking about poetry. And he is there to uh, talk about poetry as well, uh, to give a talk that he would have called Our Formal Heritage from Walt Whitman, but ended up just calling an approach to the poem. And what I had heard about this meeting, about how he prepared to give this talk, I found it in a biography of, of Williams, and it says, he found himself studying Saintsbury's tome-like Manual of English Prosody, uh, now to be ready to answer, to be prepared to answer as he could whatever objections the academic community assembled in Salt Lake City might bring against his talk 
of a new measure of a new kind of poetry. He did not, as he told a friend, want to be caught with my pants too far down on technical matters. And that always struck me uh, beyond being very self-conscious and poets are self-conscious people. But it struck me as being kind of unfortunate and sad that by this time, Williams has written great poetry and it hasn't been recognized as such uh, by as many people as who were reading Eliot or Pound or Marianne Moore or Robert Frost or even Robinson Jeffers, who was still fairly famous by then. And it seems so strange. It, it's like the, the story that I heard about uh, when James Joyce was in Italy, I believe, and this was before he had ever published anything, but he was working on a portrait of the artist as a young man, or maybe with the early chapters of Ulysses living in, in uh, Rome or Trieste. And, uh, but he needs a job, and he has to go somewhere to take a test. And like the, the greatest prose writer in the 20th century, uh, has to take a test on English literature. It seems so sad that, that Williams thought it was necessary that he brush up on his knowledge of poetry when he had more than enough knowledge, thank you very much, uh, just in the experience of writing poetry himself. I did see, though, that in that lecture that he gave, uh, this comes from Paul Mariani's book, uh, Biography of Williams, called A New World Naked. It says, uh, I believe he's paraphrasing Williams, but uh, this is what Mariani says, uh, once, form, once a form, a certain poetic form, had reached its perfection, as the blank verse had in Shakespeare's handling of it, there was no alternative but to break that line down again into its constitutive elements, and then begin again to build toward some other form. And I read that with kind of astonishment. Um, is it true that uh, Shakespeare perfected blank verse to such a degree that it, we need to break from it? Uh, didn't Milton do something with it? Didn't Wordsworth do something with it? Um, I'm certainly trying to do something with it myself in my own small way. But I like that uh, Williams sees that, that we have no alternative but to break with it. Whereas my thing has been, uh, find the thing that has worked so well and work within those confines, you might say. So, we can get back to the poems. This is a poem called Approach to a City. And this is a nice uh, poem about a city that does not seem to be in New Jersey, but still gets the Williams point across. It says, getting through with the world. I never tire of the mystery of these streets, the three baskets of dried flowers in the high barroom window, the gulls wheeling above the factory, the dirty snow, the humility of the snow, that silvers everything and is trampled and lined with use, yet falls again the silent birds on the still wires of the sky, the blur of wings as they take off together, the flags in the heavy air 
move against a leaden ground, the snow penciled with the stubble of old weeds. I never tire of these sights, but refresh myself there, always for there is small holiness to be found in braver things. There is small holiness to be found in braver things. That's a poem from 1946. We move a little further ahead in time to his poem, This Desert Music, from 1954. Here is a poem called uh, To a Dog Injured in the Street. It says this, It is myself, not the poor beast lying there, yelping with pain, that brings me to myself with a start, as at the explosion of a bomb, a bomb that has laid all the world waste. I can do nothing but sing about it, and so I am assuaged from my pain. A drowsy numbness drowns my sense, as if of hemlock I had drunk. I think of the poetry of René Char, and all he must have seen and suffered, that has brought him to speak only of sedgy rivers, of daffodils and tulips, whose roots they water, even to the free-flowing river that laves the rootlets of those sweet-scented flowers that people the Milky Way. I remember Norma, our English setter of my childhood, her silky ears and expressive eyes. She had a litter of pups one night in our pantry, and I kicked one of them, thinking, in my alarm, that they were biting her breasts to destroy her. I remember also a dead rabbit lying harmlessly on the outspread palm of a hunter's hand. As I stood by watching, he took a hunting knife and with a laugh thrust it up into the animal's private parts. I almost fainted. Why should I think of that now? The cries of a dying dog are to be blotted out as best I can. René Char, you are a poet who believes in the power of beauty to right all wrongs. I believe it also. With the invention and with invention and courage, we shall surpass the pitiful dumb beasts. Let all men believe it, as you have taught me also to believe it. And there he is calling on Keats again. Uh, you are a poet who believes in the power of beauty to right all wrongs. And a sort of uh, related poem, only a few pages later. I like these long, long-ish later poems that sort of tell a story. Uh, this is called Deep Religious Faith. Past death, past rainy days, or the distraction of ladies' smocks all silver-white, Beyond the remote borders of poetry itself, if it does not drive us, it is vain. Yet it is that which made El Greco paint his green and distorted saints and live lean. It is what in life drives us to praise music and the old, or sit by a friend in his last hours. All that which makes the pear ripen or the poet's line come true. Invention is the heart of it. Without the quirks and oddnesses of invention, the paralytic is confirmed in his paralysis. 
It is from a northern and half-savage country where the religion is hate. There the citizens are imprisoned. The rose may not be worshipped, or the poet look to it for benefit. In the night, a storm of gale proportions came up. No one was there to envisage a field of daisies. There were bellowings and roarings from a child's book of fairy tales. The rumble of a distant bombing, or of a bee. Shame on our poets. They have caught the prevalent fever. Impressed by the, quote, laboratory, they have forgot the flower, which goes beyond all laboratories. They have quit the job of invention. The imagination has fallen asleep in a poppy cup. And the poets have been impressed by the laboratory. They have forgotten the flower from the poem Pastoral that I began with here. Now we come to probably William's best poems, uh, his best long poem anyway, which I'll only be reading sections from. And to my mind is one of the great love poems uh, in the language. This is toward the end of Williams's life. Let me find where it is here. Published in 1955 in the book Journey to Love. It includes um, it includes a wonderful long poem called Asphodel, That Greeny Flower. It's about 30 pages long, but I obviously won't be reading that much of it. Uh, and it seems to be, uh, well, one of the stories that's told about Williams is that he had his doctor's life, and he had his poetry life, and he had his family life, but it was uh, something that he and his wife agreed to that on the weekends, on Fridays, he would head off for New York City and get a bit of the culture that people who live in New York City would get. He would meet with other poets and writers and painters. And it seems that there or elsewhere, uh, sometimes just perhaps in Rutherford itself, uh, he was unfaithful to his wife. His wife's name was uh, Flossie or Floss. Um, one of our cats was named after Mrs. William Carlos Williams, and that's still who I think of when I think of William Carlos Williams as our cat. Um, and uh, towards the end of William's life, uh, his health is failing, uh, his mind is failing, and he feels the need to unburden himself and confess these, um, these indiscretions to his wife. And uh, this is what Paul Mariani has to say about that in his book. Um, this is when he is in, actually, uh, a mental hospital. Um, it says, let's see, uh, no one understandably beside Floss ever heard this psychic unburdening, and she apparently never uttered a word of what her husband revealed to her, even to her own sons. She was always an intensely private person, reticent by nature, and in large part unsuspecting. But apparently Williams felt it necessary now, in the face of his own imminent death, to treat his wife as his confessor. 
as the names of women he had known intimately were revealed, Floss began to cave in under the accumulated weight until something went dead. Williams had always loved his wife deeply, and she would always be his first flower. But he always loved women, many women, and sometimes he had acted passionately on those impulses, even right there in his hometown. He had always returned afterwards to Floss, he would have found it, unthinkable after the first flurry of passion not to return to her. But over the years there had been those interludes. Surely, Paul Mariani says, surely she had in some sense already known, but apparently she had not. And now here she was, with a husband permanently disabled and drifting towards inevitable death. Williams, for his own part, had always had the need to confess, hating lying as he did, and he did not want to die with the burden of his hopefully innocuous deceptions still on his troubled mind. After all, he had already left clues about his sexual history everywhere for Floss to read in his poems and novels and plays, and the poet Robert Lowell would be more on the mark than he knew when he called Asphodel a poem of simple confession. Williams even blamed his poems, now, for helping to bring on his present condition, believing that they had been, quote, a dangerous thing to fool with. Now that quotation is worth looking up. What does he mean by a dangerous thing to fool with? But poetry is like holding fire in your hand, um, having uh, the passion and creativity that will make you run off and do things you wouldn't normally do. Um, in 2022, we can maybe think a little differently about uh, how honorable this is to tell your wife this after a long, uh, after a long life together, and presumably long after these affairs had ended. Uh, whether it was right to do that, um, even Mariani says he did not want to die with the burden of his deceptions on his troubled mind, but he apparently had no problem troubling his wife with it either. Maybe that will color the poems, the parts of the, this poem that I'm about to read to you, uh, but or maybe not. Uh, people are complicated. I just finished listening to a biography of uh, Charles Dickens, who left his wife for a much younger woman, and after, uh, after he died, that younger woman uh, sort of remade herself uh, claimed to be much younger than she actually was, and no one knew about her affair with Dickens uh, for the rest of her life, not even her own children. Uh, she and her sisters took that secret to the grave, and her sons only found out about it afterwards. So you wonder, um, is it better to tell? Is it better not to tell? Um, is it better to have them figure it out on their own, that their parents or that people... Uh, are complicated and sometimes do things that they later regret. But in any case, uh, if you're going to make a confession and an apology in poetry, this is a pretty good way to do it. And this is what I will end with today. And immediately after this will be a recording, just so we can hear Williams read one of his own poems. And that will be all for Williams. So these are just little bits and pieces from Asphodel, that greeny flower. Love is something else, or so I thought it, 
a garden which expands, though I knew you as a woman and never thought otherwise, until the whole sea has been taken up and all its gardens. It was the love of love, the love that swallows up all else, a grateful love, a love of nature, of people, animals, a love engendering gentleness and goodness that moved me, and that I saw in you. A flower, a weakest flower, shall be our trust, and not because we are too feeble to do otherwise, but because at the heights of my power I risked what I had to do, therefore to prove that we love each other. While my very bones sweated that I could not cry to you in the act of asphodel, that greeny flower, I come, my sweet, to sing to you. What power has love but forgiveness? In other words, by its intervention, what has been done can be undone. What good is it otherwise? Because of this, I have invoked that flower in that, frail as it is, after winter's harshness, it comes again to delect us. Asphodel, the ancients believed in hell's despite, was such a flower. With daisies pied and violets blue, we say, the spring of the year comes in. So may it be with the spring of love's year also, if we can but find the secret word to transform it. It is ridiculous what airs we put on to seem profound, while our hearts gasp dying for want of love. Having your love I was rich, thinking to have lost it I am tortured and cannot rest. I do not come to you abjectly with confessions of my faults. I have confessed, all of them. In the name of love I come proudly as an equal to be forgiven. Let me, for I know you take it hard, with good reason. Give the steps, if it may be, by which you shall mount again to think well of me. You were like those, though I quickly correct myself, for you were a woman and no flower, and had to face the problems which confront a woman. But you were, for all that, flower-like, and I say this to you now, and it is the thing which compounded my torment that I never forgot it. You have forgiven me, making me new again, so that here, in the place dedicated in the imagination to memory of the dead, I bring you a last flower. Don't think that because I say this in a poem it can be treated lightly, or that the facts will not uphold it. Are facts not flowers, and flowers facts, or poems flowers, or all works of the imagination interchangeable? Which proves that love rules them all, for then you will be my queen, my queen of love, forevermore. The palm goes always to the light. Who most shall advance the light, call it what you may, the light, for all time, shall outspeed the thundercrack. Medieval pageantry is human, and we enjoy the rumor of it, as in our world we enjoy the reading of Chaucer, likewise a priest's raiment, or that of a savage chieftain. It is all a celebration of the light. All the pomp and ceremony of weddings, sweet Thames run softly till I end my song, are of an equal sort, 
for our wedding too, the light was wakened and shone the light. The light stood before us waiting. I thought the world stood still at the altar. So intent was I before my vows, so moved by your presence, a girl so pale and ready to faint that I pitied and wanted to protect you. As I think of it now, after a lifetime, it is as if a sweet-scented flower were poised and for me did open. Asphodel has no color save to the imagination, but it too celebrates the light. It is late, but an odor as from our wedding has revived for me and begun again to penetrate into all the crevices of my world. Read that last sentence again. It is late, but an odor as from our wedding has revived for me and begun again to penetrate into all the crevices of my world. I should say that one of my favorite lines of poetry, my favorite lines of how to live your life, really, uh, comes from this. It is um, from a few pages ago. It is ridiculous what airs we put on to seem profound while our hearts gasp dying for want of love. And I think that is the kind of thing that defines William Carlos Williams and what he was able to do. I've chosen 10 or 11, I think, small poems that uh, you could read in 10 minutes. Uh, you can find many, many more from him. And I think that that uh, sense of openness and empathy and love and uh, human warmth is what we find in what he does. Uh, as he says, it is all a celebration of the light. He is about affirming the world. And so let us listen to uh, Mr. Williams recite one of his poems himself. And uh, thank you, as always, for listening. When I was younger, it was plain to me I must make something of myself. Older now, I walk back streets, admiring the houses of the very poor, roof out of line with sides, the yards cluttered with old chicken wire, ashes, furniture gone wrong, the fences and outhouses built of barrel staves and parts of boxes, all, if I'm fortunate, smeared a bluish green that properly weathered pleases me best of all colors. No one will believe this of vast import to the nation. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.